0: This is the Alone With Our Principals podcast, episode 21. Stop, drop, and catch the baby. I'm Chris.
1: And I'm Eric. And we're both elementary school principals in the Hesperia Unified School District in Southern California. On this episode, we discuss leadership, compassion, and empathy in the healthcare profession. Our guest is Jeff Roth, a Senior Registered Nurse Clinical Stroke Program Manager with Banner Dell E. Web Medical Center in Sun City, Arizona.
0: Alone With Our Principles is unofficially sponsored by American Airlines, Twitter, and miracle Grow because we're flying by the tweet of our plants. Don't mess with the bully up, man. You'll get the horns.
2: You've got a real attitude problem if you flyer, a slacker. So far this semester, he has been absent nine times. I'm the principal, man.
0: All right, so uh, welcome to uh, the Alone With Our Principal's podcast, Jeff Roth. We're happy to have you with us. Good afternoon.
2: Hi, uh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
0: And we're also going to introduce you and our listeners to our inimitable fact checker, producer, sound engineer, Miss Carrie Lewis.
3: Hello, gentlemen.
1: Hello, good afternoon.
0: So, Jeff, um, you've actually been the subject of conversation here on our podcast a couple of times, (laughs) um, (laughs) whether or not you know it. Um, Eric has brought you up in the context of working together for the San Bernardino Spirit, uh, I believe. And the other story that I'd kind of love to hear your perspective on is something called skitching. as we looked up in our fact check, which is when apparently somebody's driving a pickup truck and somebody else is being towed along behind it. So Eric told us his perspective. So we'd love to hear your story of that.
1: We didn't prepare for this. Go (laughs) ahead. Well, yes, uh, we did do that. I remember the 82 Toyota pickup truck. We would
2: go behind Cohen High School, which was a huge flood control area. And after it would rain, there would be. I don't know what six inches to a foot of water out there. So one day, one of our friends decides to get the bright idea to hook up a rope to the bumper of my pickup truck, take out a set of water skis, and one of us would drive down along the side of the flood control channel, and the other one would be skiing behind in this god awful water. Who knows what was in that water? So I wonder if we're still around too.
0: Well, yeah, when you say one of your friends came up with the idea, would it happen to have been one of your friends who might be sitting about a foot and a half away from me? <laughs>
2: Well, he was involved in the scheme, but it was actually another friend of ours named Tommy. Um, yeah, I don't know if you remember Tommy, but yeah, he came up with some pretty uh, crazy ideas. But I believe Eric was the first one. Or am I supposed to call you Mr. Land here? Because you're
1: no, cause no your now, we're casual okay. here. We're casual.
2: Good because I know Mr. Landing. You're not him, so <laughs> um,
1: that's my father.
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah, so so uh, yes, yeah, so we uh, would ski back and forth for for a long time until that fire department stopped us. Remember that day?
1: Yes. Yes, they weren't too happy
2: about that. Yeah, so anyway, that was our last day of doing that, but that was fun. But, yes, working at uh, San Bernardino Spirit, when we were, gosh, 14, 15 years old, we were riding our bikes down Highland Avenue, which I would never let my kid do nowadays. Um, Stopped in there and asked the guy for a job, and he said, well, I have one job, and
1: we'll split it between the two of you. And we must have been there for, what, two or three seasons, four seasons? I believe it was three seasons, yeah. It's funny because we kind of went there on a whim, and walked in the office and told him we were, you know, these just punk kids, 15 years old uh, on bicycles, and and the the GM at the time of the he was he was the GM of the stadium, I guess, came out and he's like, well, I have one job available, and so uh, basically we worked the entire home season, alternating home games, uh, being lot sweepers, and walked around with uh, a trash can and a, and a broom, but you know, we got paid to watch baseball, so it was pretty amazing.
0: That sounds like an amazing there- job.
2: But we got to see guys like, I remember in the audience there was a fellow you may have heard of, Ken Griffey. Oh, yeah. was watching his son play, and I actually got um, an autographed baseball, a uh, foul ball that was hit. When you, when you were the sweeper, you would hear people start cheering or screaming. You would look up for Ideally a foul ball. Look and, up. Yeah. yeah, we'd look up, and we would catch a lot of foul balls. So I got a foul ball, and King Griffey Jr. I mean, King Griffey Sr. signed it, and he said, Go have my son sign it. He'll be uh, the next big name in baseball. So I have both of their autographs on the baseball.
0: On the same ball? Yeah. So, Oh, that's, I mean, I'm sure there's a few of those, but that sounds like a great piece of memorabilia for sure.
2: Yeah. Well, That, that was a fun game. Yeah.
0: Well, Jeff, uh, you know, obviously, um, you crossed our paths uh, a long time ago with with Eric here, but we wanted to bring you on our show today to talk about your role in the healthcare profession, uh, specifically in your leadership role, and also during the pandemic, how that's impacted uh, healthcare in your world. So, if you could uh, take us through your professional background and experience, and let us know more about that.
2: So, I uh, right out of high school, I went into EMP school, and I obtained my paramedic license in 1999. Uh, worked in yellland Empire San marino redlands uh, high desert area until I moved to Arizona in two thousand and four uh, as a paramedic. in fact, I was on the day of the um of the nine eleven attacks and we were all deployed up to the uh, what was the old air Force base over there in atalanto um, George is that what it is Where well, a lot of planes were diverted yeah we were we were diverted over there and uh, bringing a lot of stuff but from there, I um, became a paramedic in Arizona for till about 2013. I decided that I needed to go back to school and get out of this 24-hour uh, shifts. And I did the paramedic to RN transition, which is at a community college. It's a one-year program. They make you do a 13-week transition, and they, they have you do one year of nursing school. So I got my nurse's license in 2014. I was an ER nurse out here. Um, did some travel nursing through Texas for about a year. I came back to the hospital where I am at now and went back into the same ER, and they asked me to um, fill in as a stroke coordinator for a little bit while our coordinator was moving to Texas. Um, so I filled in as an interim position. I actually enjoyed the job, so I I went full-time, um, and that's where I've been for the last three years. So during that time, though, I've, I got my bachelor's from Grand Canyon, and I'm currently uh, getting my master's from uh, United States University out of uh, San Diego and pursuing a uh, family nurse practitioner degree.
0: Now when you say uh, stroke coordinator, I know what I know how that sounds to me, but what are the general descriptions in the day to day of that? Actually I'm glad you asked that because some
2: people thought that I was coordinating people's strokes, like okay, we're gonna schedule <laughs> your stroke on one day and that's not it. So
0: that would be awesome if we can coordinate
1: <laughs> those kinds of things around our schedules.
2: Right.
0: You know? It is not a convenient day for me to be having strokes. Yeah, a stroke, yeah
1: so. sorry, we're full today, so if
2: you could just come tomorrow, that would be great. <laughs> now, um as a stroke coordinator, I ensure that we're setting uh, that we're meeting all metrics set forth by the American Stroke Association and the regulatory agencies like the Joint Commission. I'm sure as schools you guys have regulatory agencies that you guys have to meet certain metrics. That's the same in the hospital system. Our, our regulatory agency is the Joint Commission and they make sure that we, they set well for stroke alone there's about 15 measures that we have to make sure that anybody who comes in with a stroke that we are checking and making, um, ruling out um, possibility of, of reoccurrence or reducing risk factors for stroke. So it, it's a, an effort to improve their outcomes. So I make sure that we're being compliant with all the core measures. I follow a patient all the way from the ER. Uh, you know, um, I hope none of you ever have to do this, but if you're having a stroke, you show up in the ER, it's pretty much your worst day ever. A stroke is pretty, pretty bad. Um, and I follow, uh, start their care from the CT machine, give them the heavy duty clot busting medication that's very critical, follow them to the ICU, follow them down to the progressive care unit, and then ultimately uh, to my uh, stroke survivor support group, which during COVID has, grown tremendously prior to covid i had about 30 to 40 members that met every month now that's over 200 uh, members that have just in the last year because we've expanded to a virtual format so but i make sure that the nurses are charting their, their stuff correctly i make sure the doctors are ordering the correct tests if it gets real busy like during covid where i was redeployed down to the er uh, making sure that we're doing the appropriate patient care so it's it's more of a manager role they call it now a clinical manager um stroke coordinator is kind of the old old term. But.
0: Yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit more about your leadership role um, further along when we um, Eric's gonna take you through some of the more specifics uh, about that.
1: My office is right across that hall. Any monkey business, ill advised.
0: Now we want to move to a segment that we affectionately call the quiz, where we've got three questions that are sort of off the beaten path, but we would love to get to know a little bit more about you. So first. Uh, what is a funnier, memorable story from when you were a student in school? And
1: none of the hosts of this podcast can be involved in said story.
0: He, he does not speak for well, Harry or first. I. We would love to hear one that <laughs> relates to our co-host here.
2: The, the first story does involve your co-host. Um, I had a feeling. I don't know, remember <laughs> at, North, at North Park when we were going to the to the school dance. You showed up in a he had that white pants with a white sport coat. I mean, he looked like John Travolta going to Adam. He looked good, let me tell you. So I please tell was me this guy. ends
1: with spaghetti. I, I I prefer um, Don Johnson to John Travolta. It was you know Miami he, Vice was big at the time. What do you want from me?
2: It was it was very big and he rocked it. He actually looked good, so he was getting on the, Rolled up the sleeves point. and the white blazer. Yeah, Jeff, do you fantastic. have pictures yeah. of this
0: somewhere? The pictures of this would go up on our Facebook page immediately. I
2: can probably get in contact with his sister uh, who has the old photo albums, and we can probably find something. That so. would be probably awesome. not, but.
1: God, good luck to you.
0: You might be our first paid guest if you can make that happen.
2: <laughs> so, but I was trying to think of something during school, uh, during high school and ninth grade, Eric and I were kind of geeks, if you will. No. Uh, we ended up going to our, our lunches and we spent them with our, our ninth grade English teacher. You remember Mr. Hollihan?
1: Absolutely. Key Club. Yes. Yeah. Yeah,
2: so, yeah. Key Club. He, We were part of the Key Club, and, uh, but we would spend our lunches in there. And we got to know this this teacher throughout the years. Actually, I'm still in contact with him today. Um, pretty cool people, but that was one of the coolest things is going in there and spending time and learning from this guy who used to be a truck driver and big time baseball fan. He loved the Minnesota twins.
1: He was a, uh, he was a, he was a truck driver while he was a teacher because we, we got so close that sh- actually at one point, I think both of us, um, went on runs with him and his, his, his semi. And so that was kind of interesting.
2: Yeah. That was after high school, but yeah, that was pretty cool. Yeah. And then one of my favorite uh, things was our senior year. I joined the, the drama club, and I was part of the set designer for the, for the plays that were going on, and I got to go up in the catwalks of the theater, and I really enjoyed that.
0: I also was a theater geek in high school. Uh, I was in a play where I had to dress up as a grandmother, believe it or not. The main character was an author. He wrote children's books under the pen name Grandma Letty, and he was up for an award, and it turned out that he didn't think that you know they wanted to see a young man as a children's book author so he actually posed as grandma letty so there are no pictures of that anywhere like in a norco high school yearbook or anything like that there are no pictures of me dressed up as an old grandmother that was 1950 what oh god I mean, there's got <laughs> uh, to <there's gotta, laughs> yeah. be an archive at
1: norco uh, high school uh, somewhere right
0: the, the camera had not yet been invented <laughs>
1: <laughs> Let's see. Who are some of his clients? Never mind. All right, Jeff. How about this one? Uh, how about the best job you've ever had outside of your current profession? So I think that would include anything in the medical field. Do you have one outside of that?
2: Well, I, I really enjoyed working over at Fiscalini Field. For the, the, it was just a great experience of learning. I mean, we're 16 years old. We're hooking up you know, beer kegs in the concession stands. and we're, It's true. We are running security in the lot. Um, remember that? We were on bicycles driving around the, the parking lot, making sure that there was nobody breaking into cars and stuff. And actually I worked for In-N-Out Burger uh, right out of high school. And we both did that, that company, yeah, we both did. It was an amazing company, well-run family run place. And I really enjoyed that place. I still say that to this day, maybe one of the best companies I ever worked for.
0: Yeah, we're going to, we need to do an In-N-Out Burger episode here. It comes up every, every few episodes because personally, I'm a huge fan of the double-double and fries and, and all of that. So we're, we we have an In-N-Out Burger episode in our future, I think. Absolutely.
2: And yeah, just, just the way they treated their, their employees, they even called them associates. They would make sure they had a picnic every summer that, and they would make sure your entire store had coverage so you can go with your own store. And then every Christmas, they had a, a party and they would give gifts to their employees. It was just a great company to work for.
0: Now, did you work uh, at In-N-Out at the same time, the two of you? We did
2: actually. Funny story with this one. Are you okay there? I'm good. Thank you. So, <laughs> so,
1: so, um,
2: can, so can, we can you in, do the uh,
0: Heimlich maneuver remotely? Our, our,
1: our, uh, our famous editor. We we're going to edit out just about anything. But I still, <laughs> when you got a cough or burp in a podcast, <laughs> you, you just kind of do this move. Right. So,
2: good sorry. tip. Good tip. Because we were still in high school and we were both on the the high school tennis team. How we made the tennis team? Don't ask me because we were we were awful. It was, but, um, but to be fair,
1: it was junior varsity.
2: But yeah. It was junior varsity, but we played tennis, and we were a, t- a pair, and what an awful pair we made. But um, I got, went down to In and Out Burger on Second Street, and I applied for a job, and and I got the job. So his mom told him, "Well, you better get your butt down there." And so the next day, he was in his little yellow car and driving down there, and he got the job. So we literally got hired at at uh, the Spirit on the same day, and then In and Out Burger on the same time, and we started. So our entire career, our first two jobs were at the, in the same. Time frame for everything. You, two could be longer than I did.
0: you two could be characters on your own tv show or a movie or something like that the adventures of jeff and eric well my mom
1: affectionately referred to us as Mutt and jeff for the some of well, you, there you go. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah
0: yes uh, yeah i'm surprised you know that reference it's even I before my time when it was original I, was say, I didn't yeah trying to think if there's yeah, a, a more current reference that Mutt and jeff would be but none are coming to mind and we
1: both worked at st bernardine's as well yes we did work at St. Bernardines. I was an ER tech and you were a respiratory therapy
2: uh, assistant or something. And we worked as, so three jobs at the same time. Kind of funny.
0: All right. Well, and then our last question here is uh, what movie, TV show or music group brings back memories from your high school years?
2: All during high school at Eric's house on Friday nights, his parents would play country music. We would sit around the table, everybody kind of relax. And that was our decompressed time and i got to learn some great music from from jim and gwen land but um when we were i think it was our senior year we got to go down and see garth brooks at the hollywood bowl you remember that
1: that's right yeah i do remember because i was riding in the back of the the geo storm, <laughs> the geo storm that had no headroom and he was
2: sitting literally like this the whole way but we got to go down there and it was garth brooks only acoustical performance that we that he's ever played um and it was a, it was a great show and we had fun we went down there with another friend of ours um, and we stayed in a hotel down there and we thought we were pretty big stuff cuz we
0: were down in LA for the night so That's right. So Eric in the back of a Geo I would I would say you would say that you have friends in cramped places.
1: I yes, it was cramped, but it was so worth it. It was a great show.
2: We had a, we had a lot of fun. So
1: Yep. Wake up and
2: smell the coffee, Mrs. Pew.
1: All right. So we are going to move in kind of the main topic. Obviously, as you know, this is a, a podcast that is centered around the idea of leadership. And, you know, we've been slowly expanding outside the world of education. So we're thankful that you were able to join us because I think especially in light of um, living through a pandemic, this is it's especially important to tell the story of some of our amazing healthcare workers. So uh, glad you're on to talk about some of that. So but one of the things that we you know, we talk about in education, I'm sure you do as well, but it's talking about your why. So what what gets you up, what drives you, what motivates you every morning, especially over the last several months when you've had to get up and go into a potentially deadly situation every day and put yourself and your own family at risk for the benefit of others. So when you think about that and think about your purpose, your why every day, uh, would you mind sharing with us and our listeners a little bit about what motivates you, what drives you? Um, And especially you're, you know, you're continuing to go to school, working on your PA, as you had mentioned. So um, knowing how difficult that is what what drives you and all that well
2: as a as a nurse taking care of stroke patients i did find my why it took me many years to find the why but um, even as an ER nurse i didn't really i kind of went in it was a job to me it wasn't anything that i was set on you know if you will um but when i became the stroke coordinator and i started seeing these people come through like i said on their worst day of their lives and we're taking care of somebody who lost the ability to speak but you know that they have their their faculties about them they just can't get the words out of their out of their mouth and you're explaining to them and helping them through the entire process and and getting them back to a uh, place in their life where they can recover or have a full recovery or a partial recovery, and then seeing them come to my stroke survivor support group. And when we were meeting in person, they would come in and and some of the people would come up and, and these old ladies would hug me or give me a kiss on the cheek and they would start crying and say, thank you, you gave me my life back. And it was just simply being there and understanding the stroke process and explaining to them and helping them through every step of the way. Being an ER nurse is kind of like an assembly line patients come in. Um, your nurse is a very important role, don't get me wrong, but the patients come in, um, you see the patient, you do an assessment, you start an IV, you give their medications and off they go to the ICU or to the medical surgical floor and you don't know their outcomes. But this way I was able to follow them all the way through the hospital and kind of get close to them. And even um, Eric, when, you're, when your mom passed away a couple years ago, the survivor support group, everyone signed a card and they sent it to the hospital to me. And condolences for your mom passing. And I thought that was pretty special. So these people are my why. They truly are. They're why I come in and do what I do each day. I didn't know anything about stroke before I took this job, and it's become my passion. And anybody can tell you that that it, I am truly passionate about stroke and improving the outcome of stroke.
1: Well, I can certainly attest to that, knowing you as long as I have, and, and way back before we ever had a, our first job. And you know, Jeff entered the field of medicine first initially as an EMT and a paramedic, and Anybody out there listening knows the shelf life of a paramedic is pretty short because it's such a high stress, unpredictable type of position. And so uh, he did it for a lot longer than most people can. But at that time, I think it was it was very much that it was a grueling taxing job Um, and then becoming a nurse. And I can tell you when I when he became when he was put in that position in the stroke department, there was definitely like a, a switch that flipped and he stopped talking about the job and started talking about people. Um, and so I can certainly attest to what he just shared and that, you know, he, he loves sharing the stories of a stroke survivors support group and, and it's become a family. He shares with them things that are going on with his family and his extended family and uh, vice versa. So it, it's, it's pretty in, um, enjoyable to watch that transition over the last few years.
0: Yeah. And Eric, when you talk yeah. about finding your why, um, it sounds like Jeff, like you found that, that if if you're secure and confident and passionate about whatever your why is, what you're actually doing um, doesn't really seem to, I mean, it matters, but you know what I'm saying, that when, if you're working towards your why, what you're doing is going to fit into that. Um, I know one of, uh, one of the companies that I've always respected is Starbucks and their CEO, uh, whose name escapes me right now. Um, but he said that we're not in the coffee business. We're in the people business. We just happen to sell coffee. And as long as we're on the topic of why Eric, I'd love to hear, uh, what you consider to be your why, cause I know what you're passionate about with your students and with your staff, but how have you been able to, you know, summarize that into your why?
1: You know, it's funny. I, I still remember this moment and we, we all get our, you know, undergraduate degrees and then getting your teaching credential. Uh, there was this moment when my supervisor as a, my intern supervisor asked us to write like a um, a purpose statement a mission statement as an educator and I still remember that moment because it it was over it was kind of oversimplified but at that time it's like I, I even as a young I don't know 20 something just getting out of college I knew that at that point I wanted to I wanted to make an impact I wanted to have a difference because like Jeff shared working all those years I did like In-N-Out Burger I loved that job it was a great company but I didn't feel like I had an impact like a lasting impact. So I knew I had to do something where I was going to make a difference and, and hope that everybody who encountered me was going to leave me better because of knowing me or because of interacting with me. Um, and so I found education as a place where I could do that and thrive in that way because, uh, I mean, you encounter so many people, whether you know students, staff, uh, families, and so there's such a large area for impact and being able to to hopefully leave a legacy and have people understand that you really care and you're somebody that um, you know just wants to make leave a positive mark on the world and, and uh, leave the leave the world better than you found it.
0: Yeah, mine is mine's very similar. That I, I always thought that, however, I had ended up uh, making my living, whether it was in education or in another field. What's always been important to me is that I can help the people around me feel valued uh, make sure that I can do what I can so that they've got a place that they not only enjoy coming to work because of the job, but because of the people that they're around. One of the yeah. most important things I think we can do as school administrators is to hire outstanding co-workers for the people that already exist on our on our staff and on our site. And what I love about education, of course, is that we've got three separate communities that we deal with. We've got our staff to build relationships with. Of course, we've got our students and then we've got our community and our families. And, you know, I've always thought that if I can create a place that people look forward to coming to because of the people that are there, in addition to because of what they do, even on, as as you say, Jeff, seeing people on the worst day of their lives or on the worst days that we have at work, if you're surrounded with great people in a place that you really feel like you're valued, then that makes the the difficult days. And we've had about a year's worth of difficult days in a row here, but, uh, you know, I can speak for all of us that it's the people that we're with that make that, um, manageable.
1: And I can certainly draw a parallel kind of between what Jeff has experienced and maybe, you know, to some degree, what we experience. you know, he talks about his stroke survivors being his why, um, you know, kind of what Jeff said a minute ago, when you're an ER nurse, you see them at their worst moment, but, um, sometimes it's a self preservation that you see them. You don't see them as a person because if you're, and and Jeff, please tell me if I'm wrong, but if you're in the middle of, a patient who's coding or having a life or death situation. And if you start to view them as a person with a family and friends, that can make it very, very difficult to do what you need to do as a professional to help save their lives. Um, but then, like you said, they, you do what you need to do, then they're off to ICU or they're off to surgery or off to somebody else. But um, you know, the position you're in now, you're, you're very much involved with following these people after their care after their healing and, um, you know, potentially for years and years to come. So that helps solidify that why. because now you are seeing them as people, as grandfathers and grandmothers and aunts and uncles and sons and daughters, not just people who are walking through the door. Is that, is that fair to say?
2: I would say that's ex- extremely accurate because as an ER nurse, I used to tell people that I didn't know the people when they were alive and so I couldn't feel their loss when they're gone. But an ER nurse is a very important role. But as you said, that in the role I'm in now, I get to see this as a person, and I get to follow them all the way through. So, I have COVID has taken two of my survivors from my group in the last couple months, and I feel the loss now. And I can actually feel um, the loss of a person and not just a patient. Um, they become family, like an extended family, you know. So that's an accurate statement.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, I, I was trying to make a parallel. My point was that, you know, we're, we're very fortunate as, as school site leaders because we can walk yeah. through th- walk through with our, our staff and our families and our students of some of the toughest moments in their lives and some of the greatest moments in their lives. And we can help, you know, walk that with them and also see the the benefits, see the outcome when people uh, grow or people change or people go through, you know, really difficult times but uh, come out on the other side and in uh, a lot of cases better for it it's it's really rewarding to be able to, to, to walk that walk with, with kids and families. Right.
2: Just knowing you and your job and seeing your transition from teacher to assistant principal to principal, I can see your why every time I come out there. And I've been out there a few times during the COVID and seeing the stress that he has, you know, trying to get the, what do you guys call it, virtual learning. I mean, just look at the gray in your going, He it's really no, kidding. Um Distinguished. kidding. He really is passionate. Yeah, it's very distinguished. He really is passionate about what he does, and I can see that. And I brag about you a lot, saying that um, that your passion for your job is what's going to help guide these kids. And uh, I kind of joke with him a lot and say that he's impacting, you know, because the Hesperia. Hyspo- he knows the district, hashtag for
1: Unified. I do. So, He'll send it to so, me so in the
2: mornings just as a reminder. No, I tell him and Marge in the mornings, happy Monday morning, go, go impact the future. And, Love it. and because they're doing an important job, and I think it's uh, what they're doing is rewarding to them, and it's going to impact a lot of the kids in the future. So thank you guys for what you do. Thank Same you.
1: Talk about, um, you, so you talked, you talked a lot about your, why you talked about your stroke survivors, talk about what that's like. So, you know, when you're having to lead with compassion, lead with empathy, and although, you know, thank God you haven't been a stroke survivor yourself, but knowing what they've gone through, knowing the science, knowing what healing looks like, how, how do you navigate that and being able to hear what they're going through, support them, encourage them and keep them headed on a path towards healing?
2: Well, the biggest thing I've had to be able to distinguish is understanding my medical role versus being uh, empathetic uh, human role. And knowing um, some people have different belief values and uh, belief systems and value systems than I would have. And that doesn't make them wrong. It's just different. So I have to respect what they're going through. Um, I often tell the stroke survivors, I don't know what you're going through because I've never had a stroke. None of you have had a stroke, so we don't know. So the biggest thing I can offer them is resources. And one of this thing is a support group. So I facilitate a support group to have other stroke survivors come in and they can talk about their experiences. Um, I'm there to listen to them. I offer uh, resources. I offer guidance. I can tell them what the literature says. I can tell them, um, well, one of the things I tell all my stroke survivors is don't ever let anybody tell you that this is your new norm because that's the worst thing you can tell anybody who's had a stroke is, okay, yeah, you you can't move your arm or you can't walk or you can't talk. This is what you're going to be like for the rest of your life because we just don't know. It could take a year or two before somebody regains function, so I never want them to think that this is what their new normal is going to be.
1: I think you said something really important. I think it's so critical in a role of any type of support group, uh, is being able to validate what people are feeling. And and that's why people go to support groups, right? Because they want to Mm -hmm. see other people that have gone through what they've gone through. When somebody suffers a loss of any kind, whether that's a physical loss, a loss of a loved one, uh, they want to be able, most of them want to connect with somebody who's experienced something like that because they understand. So being able to validate that, hey, I, I'm not in your shoes. I haven't gone through what you've gone through, but I have a lot of knowledge and expertise that I can give you in my medical role, but I'm also an empathetic listener and I can, I can walk through the painful parts with you um, as a human being, just as somebody who cares about you.
0: Well, and sometimes when we're going through any kind of challenge, whether it's medical or otherwise, sometimes just knowing that we're not the only one that's ever had to go through that uh, is is a good start anyway.
2: Well, one of the things I started doing too is pre-COVID, of course, we have volunteers because I'm in Sun City, West Arizona, and there's just volunteers everywhere you look. But um, we had a lot of volunteers at the hospital, so I started taking um, stroke survivors um, and getting them into the volunteer role, and they were seeing patients in the hospital who had strokes. So I would go in with these patients who have been cleared. You know, they do all their training and everything. Um, and they're seeing stroke survivors in the hospital while they're still there and say, here's what you can expect. This is what happened to me. Here's, here's what you can expect over the next six months or two a year. So that they're not just hearing it from me, somebody who is saying, okay, yeah, I'm reading from a book in here, but somebody who's actually been laying in that bed and, and wore, worn those shoes. And so that was one of the programs we started that
1: had to come to a halt because of COVID. But. Speaking of COVID, can you talk to us a little bit about over the last, what now, about 12 months, right? How did COVID impact your day-to-day and what your role was at the hospital?
2: Oh gosh, COVID, uh, this pandemic has been like nothing I've ever seen before. So everything from going into a clean entrance, all the employees had to go into this one entrance, you had to go through an infrared scanner, make sure you don't have a fever. We had to wear these masks. Trying to protect yourself, you don't know what kind of situation you're going to go um, into. If the paramedics are bringing somebody who's having a stroke, is it a COVID patient? Can we get close to them? We had to alter our process. ICU beds were being totally inundated with patients who were intubated. Where do I put my stroke survivors? Where do I put these patients who are on this medication that needs to be in the ICU? Where my my neuro floor was completely closed and became the COVID floor. So all of my neuro nurses were taking care of COVID patients. So where do we put the, where do we put the stroke patients? So it took a lot of creativity to a lot of behind the scenes stuff on my end um, to try and get things running smoothly so that our stroke survivors were still getting. The care they needed and um, the information that they needed in order to give them with the best outcome, while still being able to populate a or take care of a, of a huge COVID population. Uh, every morning every evening, I would get a message, um, and it would talk about the the capacity of the hospital. And from November until just about three weeks ago, my ICU was um, there was green and there was red. So red was was inundated, and my ICU was about 140 to 160 percent capacity. Wow. Um, with mo- with most of those patients on ventilators. and um, So let me just kind of give you a little background. If you have a stroke and we give you this medication that, that can bust up the clot, you have to let to ICU for 24 hours. And I did not have anywhere to put these patients. And it wasn't just my hospital. It was all the hospitals across Phoenix. And we ended up having to send people all the way down to Tucson. We were sending people to Las Vegas. We were sending people anywhere. We sent somebody to Loma Linda, anywhere that had a bed that we can get all the way from Phoenix because that's how critical the shortage was on beds. Um, and when was that? It was very...
0: What was the time frame Is for? This just
2: as, oh, it, from November of um, twenty until see we really had our spike like um, the first week of November until um, about the last week of January, so it was just chaos. Where's so. Arizona
0: at right now? Because I know we're we're seeing positive signs here.
2: So our governor just signed a um, uh, executive order that all public schools will have to be opened by the fifteenth of March um, for in person, but our Positivity rate has gone way down, I think we're right around 5 or 6%. Um, and uh, hospitals all the way across the system are the lowest I've seen since since the fall of 2020. Oh, that's
0: that's good awesome. Good
2: news all around. So, yeah, yeah being, uh, COVID is really, uh, was really tricky for the whole year, I'll tell you that. But I'm glad to see. So one of the things I didn't tell you guys is I'm the chair of the Arizona State Stroke Coordinators. And that's not just Banner Health, but that's all the other facilities. Banner is like a Kaiser of, of Arizona. It has many hospitals across the state. But I was also in charge of, all, or not in charge, but I was the chairman of all of all the hospital systems, and we would meet every month, and we were discussing things at a state level on how to, to better outcome our COVID patients. Usually, this is something we would meet every other month, but we stepped it up to monthly to try and come up with solutions at a at a state system level. If that makes sense, so.
0: Yeah. yeah, definitely. Now, before we go on to the extra credit question, Eric, I want to kind of lighten it up a little bit here, because I know <laughs> Jeff has said uh, on his on his background that he sent us. And I know what you've mentioned, Eric, that you both worked uh, as paramedics or in the ER. So, no, we didn't both work in the ER, but
1: okay. um, we have such a similar path. I mean, I, I don't think we said in the beginning, but Jeff and I have pretty much known each other at least since kindergarten, if not earlier, <laughs> well, <laughs> went to school together. Uh, became truly best of friends through junior high, high school. Did everything together, and then beyond that, like you mentioned, getting jobs together. Um, and then at one point, we you know we both had looked into going into you know the paramedic field, firefighting field. We we uh, I got certified as an EMT. He was able to move on and, and do something with that when I kind of took a different direction. But in the meantime, I had secured a job at St. Bernardine's Medical Center in San Bernardino. I was an assistant. Respiratory therapy assistant, okay. um, which I actually really enjoyed. I, I didn't do it very long because life took me in another direction. Um, but at that time, he had secured a position in the same hospital working as an ER tech, which an EMT at that time, you could, you could work in that role okay. doing some basic routine uh, things in the hospital.
0: Well, the reason I ask is I asked that question to ask this question. I've known people that have been ER nurses or ER technicians before, and they always have some story that sticks with them about somebody that got hurt in a really, really stupid, funny, or ridiculous way. And I was wondering, but actually hoping, uh, that one (laughs) or both of you would have a story related to that. Because I know I've hurt myself in some pretty stupid ways, but uh, what do you got?
2: One of the stories that I have involves... Gentleman who was overly beveraged, highly intoxicated. Overly um, beveraged. Yeah, <laughs> overly beveraged. So um, he was very intoxicated. And he thought in Phoenix, it gets a little warm in the summer. I don't know if you've noticed, but he thought he was at the one of the lakes and there were some power lines that went over like the Bay Area the, to the other side of the lake. And um, there were some metal cables. And he thought it would be a good idea to climb up there and kind of go across the, 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 the bay over the water. Um, when it was about 121 outside. So, you know, uh, metal out in that sun. So, uh, he gets about five feet out, and his hands literally slough off from the heat from the burns, and he oh, falls no. down uh, 60 feet to the ground and hits the water um, with uh, – I mean, I'm sorry, he hit the beach. He missed the water by about two feet.
0: Now, if that was Palm um, Beach, that would have been ironic, yeah. wouldn't it? Boom, boom. Palm, we <laughs> Palm Beach.
2: So, uh, yeah, so that was a, a very – crazy injury um, and he was so drunk when he came in that he was trying to fight the backboard and I finally had to get up in his face and say if you want to walk again don't move and then he kind of I think that sunk in at that point that he may have a serious injury and he did that, that wow. was a crazy injury so
1: yeah I didn't I, I worked in respiratory therapy so I didn't get to see a whole lot um, really crazy but I, I will say this I got an opportunity in the short time I worked there, which was less than a year, to see uh, um, some amazing things. I saw saw beauty and I saw tragedy. I was privileged enough to be able to witness a cesarean section and see a baby being born. And it was just by virtue of the respiratory therapist kind of, you know, approached me one day and said, you want to see something pretty cool? (laughs) And I was like, yeah. And so he's like, all right, scrub in, stand in the corner, don't say anything. And he took me in the operating room and and that was, I will never, that was the most amazing, one of the most amazing, beautiful things I ever saw. But in my time there, I also got to work. I think there were three different codes, which is when a patient effectively stopped the heart stops beating and life-saving measures take over. And uh, because I was, Um, Seemingly strong and big. I was often called on to do chest compressions and things like (laughs) that. Seemingly strong. (laughs) uh, So, but, um, you know, obviously tragic, but memorable nonetheless. But being there and being part of a life-saving effort, um, you know, I know for Jeff, that became very routine over his career. But for me, that'll stick in my memory forever. Um, Very young patients, very old patients. And um, so that was certainly memorable for me.
2: You you mentioned having a baby. I was coming back from lunch and coming across the parking lot and this car comes flying and honking the horn, like almost, I thought they were gonna drive right through the front doors. And so, say typically when that happens, it's usually a shooting victim. They're dropping off a, a shooting. So I walk over there and I walk in just as a lady is, is pushing a baby and I had time just to stop and drop and catch the baby and call for help. It was right there in the parking lot. That's how fast the baby came. Wow.
0: So I'm a man of respect around here. They love me around here. I'm a swell guy.
1: All right, so we are gonna move into our extra credit portion. And so uh, we always like to have a little fun to end the podcast. And so our question we've got for you today, I think it's a good one, but here it is. Choose one of your favorite classic TV shows and talk about how the characters on that show would have dealt with the COVID-19 pandemic. So Jeff, since you're our guest, of course, we're going to let you go first. What do you got for us?
2: really like the show Big Bang Theory, and I watched the show Young Sheldon, and let me tell you that uh, Sheldon Cooper has been preparing for COVID his entire life.
0: Uh, like, <laughs> one of my favorite doesn't shows. Doesn't like crowds, too, yeah.
2: But yeah, doesn't like shaking hands, um, doesn't, you know, uh, very big into science and stuff. So he, I think Big Bang Theory with Sheldon Cooper would be my number one choice. But if you look at the show MASH, there was um, a meme that was going around recently how they were talking about um, the washing of the hands. And then there was an episode where one of the colonels was trying to, they were, somebody was trying to kill him. So nobody wanted to go around him. They were distancing from him. Um, It was, it was like a funny meme about Nash and COVID-19, how they were preparing for it back in the uh, the early eighties.
0: Well, I could see radar being the one in charge of taking the masks and the, you know, and the protective equipment to everybody. Of course, I I would imagine Klinger would have all kinds of fancy lace masks to wear. Um, I was a Nash fan too, but yeah, Hawkeye Pierce is one of my favorite television characters of all time. I, I think he was great. Chris, how about you? Yeah, I was thinking um, from the workplace perspective, uh, The Office, uh, the American version. um, uh, The British version is pretty funny, too, but but we watched all of the American version. And I just thought the workplace uh, would be ridiculous. Michael Scott, um, I, I think he enjoyed being around people so much that Michael would be refusing to work from home. You know, he'd, he'd, he'd be the kind of type, he would insist that everybody show up for work, but then he'd hear somebody cough and he'd quarantine himself in his own office, but still make everybody else come to work anyway. Um, Dwight would be the one he, you know, Dwight would claim that Shrewd DNA is impervious to COVID. Uh, so he w- he would claim himself, you know, immune. Uh, I think uh, Jim... Jim would be playing all kinds of pranks on Dwight, basically he, uh, Dwight would come in, put on his mask and it would either like have super glue in it uh, or something like that. Uh, and of course, Stanley, I think, would uh, embrace the work from home uh, scenario as much as anybody else. Uh, he'd be zooming in from like Palm Beach or whatever, um, not that Palm Beach, a different Palm beach You've done <laughs> um, Palm Beach like six times yeah, spot. exactly. Um, so yeah, I would have to go with the office just because of all the workplace. Um, things that would go on. So, Eric, what about you? Uh
1: I I went with friends just because probably it's so universally well known and the characters are so well known and I think there's a lot of different ways that the characters could go with this. And I, I don't have an answer for all of them, but I immediately thought of like Monica, right? Monica was the clean for freak. Sure. And so if the apartment was clean pre-COVID, I can only imagine the um the obsessive compulsive nature with 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 which Monica would uh you know, clean and probably have one of those infrared cameras at the door like <laughs> Jeff mentioned earlier before anybody came in the apartment. Yes um you know chandler would just you know deal with everything with sarcasm and uh you know probably keep the humor uh the levity uh going um phoebe i don't know phoebe probably write songs about it and um record them because the coffee shop would be closed they couldn't go to central park uh you know during a pandemic um and then ross i don't know ross was an anthropologist right so ross would you know be all about the research and uh he'd probably be the first one in line to get the vaccine
0: Yeah, I figure, and and Joey would probably have eight different DoorDash drivers lined up at his door at any given moment.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, sandwiches. Yeah. Yeah, Always a sandwich. Exactly. I think your daughter would be very proud of your friend's reference right there, so... She would. Absolutely. Well, Jeff, that is about to wrap it up for us. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast today. We appreciated hearing your insights on uh, the medical field and uh, leadership and specific to the pandemic. And we certainly, I think I speak for all of us in the room. We appreciate you for all you do being a frontline worker and being an essential hero for all of us.
0: And it was nice um, for me, Jeff, to meet you face to zoom here. I know Eric has spoken very highly of you over the, over the last bit that, uh, that we've been doing this. So it's, it's nice to actually have you on with us. Thank you for being here.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. I appreciate all you guys do for the, the impact, your impact in the future out there. So
0: <laughs> Hashtag.
1: take care, my friend. All right. Thanks, guys. All right, bye.
3: That's the fact. Yeah.
0: It is time as always for our fact check with the lovely and talented Carrie Lewis. Take it away, Carrie.
3: Hello again, gentlemen. Okay. So I have a few for you today. Um, You brought up Your nickname, I believe, was Mutt and Jeff. That was your mother that called you that? Yes, sir? Um, Mutt and Jeff uh, was a long-running and widely popular American newspaper comic strip created by cartoonist Bud Fisher in 1907. Too mismatched. It says Tinhorns, Horns, and that is from Wikipedia. I don't think you're mismatched with Jeff. I felt like there was a serious romance happening there. And I was waiting for you to finish each other's sentences. I thought it was coming. (laughs) Give it a minute. (laughs) And then um, I have, you mentioned Georgia Air Force Base. And so George Air Force Base was a United States Air Force Base located within the city limits, eight miles northwest of central Victorville, California. Um, I don't know what year it closed, so I apologize, but I actually worked there. I was a custodian and a telephone operator for Georgia Air Force Base. So I mm. thought I would share that. Yes. Little fact, I have- We can't for... fact check that, can we? No, we can't. No, you cannot. <laughs> <laughs> and then I have um, the average time a paramedic Um, Spends on the job before they burn out is actually, according to Stress, the silent killer of EMS careers, is um, five years on the job. Okay, and the last one, Chris mentioned Starbucks' original CEO, Howard D. Schultz, born July 19, 1953, an American businessman. And I just want to say thank you again, Wikipedia. They keep helping us out. (laughs) Thanks for listening, everyone. Please take a minute to rate, review, and subscribe to the Alone With Our Principles podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: For more content, including videos, contests, and other information, you can follow us on our Facebook page. We would love to hear from you.
0: Until next time, this is Chris. And on behalf of Eric and Carrie, we hope you'll remember the words of the great philosopher Ferris Bueller, who once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop to look around once in a while, you could miss it.